Good evening, Hope Church, and everybody tuning in online, jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I hope you have your Bibles with you. I want you to follow along with this one. This is uh, an interesting passage where Pastor Paul has been answering the questions and the problems he's heard about, about his young church plant there in Corinth. Uh, this is the, the second letter he's written, the first one we have in our scripture, uh, the first of two we have, but he's been answering wild questions and, and addressing wild problems they've got in the church. Last week was probably the climax of the, the, the heinousness of the issues, although there's still horrible things to come in the book. Uh, uh, and, and so here he is, he's been giving, not advice, but commands, been putting them into order and really giving them rebuke after rebuke because unlike himself and the other ministers with him, they had forgotten what living like Jesus looks like. They'd wanted to receive his blessings, receive his status, ignore and reject his lifestyle, his lowliness, his willingness to suffer, his, his uh, purpose to suffer. They had become proud. They had neglected church unity for the sake of factions and, and little sex within the group. You know, I belong to this guy, you belong to that teacher, we're better than them, and, and there was, there was uh, arguments of all kinds going on. Paul is cutting it all out. Uh, the first thing he starts with is that they need to view Jesus on the cross as the highest sign of Christianity. It's central to the message which saves, and it's symbolic of the life we live. And so all these problems were coming out of a misunderstanding and, and sin there. But this week we get to a very interesting one. He's, he's sort of uh, not left entirely, but uh, we're going to pick up on sexual immorality in the weeks to come. But he's sort of taken a, a break to look at lawsuits, lawsuits between Christians. And here the big question is, can Christians take another Christian to court? Can Christians take a, another Christian to court over personal matters? The, the answer is going to be no, but that phrase there for personal matters is so important. That's the key phrase. There's going to be a lot of uh, people who misunderstand this, misapply this, and really just open their people uh, up to abuse and uh, horrible loss and uh, misbehavior and uh, suffering because of a misunderstanding of this kind of text. So we're going to look at it, and that's ultimately the question. Can, is it wrong to ever take another Christian to court? Uh, is, it, is it wrong to go uh, use legal action against other Christians? And, and let's just lay, lay it out quickly like, uh, now and then get into the details of what's so wrong with the Corinthian mindset. Uh, but in their day, they were, this was basically a usual part of life. Somebody offends you, somebody professionally uh, undersells you or something like that. You've got a problem with somebody, don't worry, don't talk about it, take them to court. Go get a lawyer, uh, go get the, the best team you can, and just bleed these people dry, get what you can. That was really the mindset. If, you, if, if somebody else offends you or damages something of yours or breaks a contract, now it's an opportunity to actually get more money. You've got to see this, that this is a, an opportunity the gods have put in your lap to, to get a good lawyer, take all the money that other person has, so you don't just get back what you're owed, you can make a profit on this. And you can increase your social standing. And you can destroy their reputation. That's what it was all about. This is first century style Jerry Springer 
sort of action going on here over personal offenses. Think like uh, uh, this is civil matters, not, not, not really legal law matters in terms of government, law, police, and people. This is just matters they were having between people. This is what the Corinthians would do. Uh, and so, uh, so, so he's going to say, no, look at, look at verse, uh, uh, well, specifically verse 2, where he calls them uh, down at the last two words of the, of the verse. He calls them trivial cases, trivial cases. So he's talking about the personal inter- uh, you know, uh, interpersonal, one-to-one problems. Don't take this stuff to court. It is so unnecessary. Uh, but there is, in our world, times when cases are, are not going to be able to be dealt with by personal wisdom and forgiveness and, and the church's leadership and stuff like that. There, there's going to be cases when it's not just a sin, it's a crime, or, or there are there are, there are things that the church is not actually competent to deal with, which become genuine reasons to go to court for, and Christians should. But So let's look at verse 1. We'll start breaking it down and really answering this question that to Paul, it really matters. This What's going on in the Corinthian church is just uh, unbelievable. It's unimaginable, but of course it's happening because that's what happens among sinners. Unimaginable, unbelievable sin. Well, he says in verse 1, And I'm going to read now through to the end of verse 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather suffer wrong, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? May God bless this, the reading of his authoritative word to us, without error and perfect this afternoon. Well, this, we're going we're gonna to look at a few things that they were forgetting. As, as Corinthian believers, they were forgetting things that got them into this dilemma, they, number one, were forgetting the distinction that they had. Number two, they were forgetting their future. Three, they were forgetting their assets in the church. And number four, they were forgetting their master's command and example. We're going to go through these each one by one. Forgetting their distinction. You can see in verse one that Paul really delineates two groups of people. He says, you are having the problem in the church, the Christians, but does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, he could have just said the, the unbelievers instead of the believers. But the distinction he's making is righteousness. The, the distinction between Christians and non-Christians is more than a title. It's more than how we spend our Sundays. It's moral. 
It's ethical. The Christian life is identified, should be a, a, a tremendous example. It should be unmissable how moral, well-behaved, righteous Christians are in our dealings in business, uh, in, our, in our dealings in finances, with one another, in our families, as a church as a whole. All of it should be very distinct. They had lost that distinction in Corinth. They disregarded the fact that they're supposed to be righteous and the world is known for unrighteousness. They'd let this, this, their old life just intermingle in their new life. They'd let their old practices remain completely normative. Like we said, this was a normal part of, of Corinthian life, was taking people you don't like to court. And they had not done the diligence of leaving behind that old leaven so that it did not infect their life. We are ordered as Christians by an entirely new set of morals. We, it, it, it's kind of, I mean, the, the stacks in this world are against Christians. If you're going to live a, a moral Christian life, you are fighting constantly uphill in an unrighteous society because they don't obey the same rules we do. They're allowed to cheat on their taxes. They're allowed to undercut business partners. They're allowed to break contracts for no reason. They, they can do whatever they want. Their God is Satan. Their Lord is themselves. That, that's their kingdom. But for Christians, Paul says, the righteous, you're not allowed to follow all those same rules. Your rules over your life changed when you became a Christian because the ruler over your life changed when you became a Christian. You and I need to remember that just because we're doing things that the world does not uh, cast us out for, you know, you, again, you, you lie, you cheat, you steal. People won't necessarily like that it's happening, but then they're not going to cast you out of society. I mean, that's what everybody does. But, but just because the world isn't enraged by it, just because your culture doesn't hate it, doesn't mean it's okay. I mean, this is so basic. Surely we're aware of this. And I know we are, but, but here Paul uh, is thinking to himself, surely the Corinthians were aware of this. There's a distinction. The righteous and the unrighteous. They've completely forgotten it. They've forgotten that there's supposed to be, a, additionally, a witness about that distinction. We are, we are living our whole lives under the flag of Jesus and his salvation. And so what you and I do is always giving a witness to the world. We covered this last week. This means that when, we go, when they were going to court against one another, the whole world was looking on, watching these things, and they were both members of First Baptist Church of Corinth. This gave a terrible witness to the world. This ruined the reputation of Jesus, and this made them look like just everybody else. There's no fundamental change that happens in Christians. We hate and war against one another. You become Christians. Oh, it turns out Christians war, hate one another. They, they take from each other. They, they are after money just the same as we are. So it ruins the witness of Jesus. And it forgets that the highest loyalty of a Christian, right? remember this distinction, the highest loyalty you have as a Christian is to other Christians. I mean, primarily to the Word of God and to, to God Himself. But, but through that, what, what that tells us is that other people who are under the Word of God, other people who are in the kingdom, other people who are 
in our church under Jesus as king, they're our highest loyalty. Not so much those who have the same culture as us or those who have the same ethnicity and racial background as us. Not the people who have the same social standing, same job, are in the same workers' unions, people who, who agree with us politically. Those people are not, are not your highest loyalty. The brotherhood are. So while everybody else might, might tell you, you know, we need to take this person to court, you need to go and, and get your rights against that person, get your money back, or whatever it is, Christians need to realize that person, however they've offended me, there will be sin, but how I act, based, uh, act in this situation needs to be controlled by this mindset. That is a brother or sister in the kingdom of God, and that changes everything changes everything. So they'd forgotten their distinction, and that's why they were doing these ridiculous things. It's easy, of course. It makes a lot of sense. If you forget the distinction between enemy and friend, when you forget the distinction between countrymen and other nations, of course it's easy to go to war on your neighbors and your brothers. So let's keep that. Those people who are ordinarily sitting next to you in the pews, Walking with Jesus, they are your brothers. Do not war against them. We're going to see here how they forgot their future. They acted the way they did because they forgot the distinction between the world and the church. And they forgot the future that awaits the church. Verse 2, Paul says, Did you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, we just finished in verse chapter 5 telling us, about how we, we don't judge the world, we judge inside. We, we discern each other's sins and, and do church discipline against the, the unrepentant. We don't judge the world and try and separate from them. What he's now talking about is, is, is not so much the, uh, the daily casting out and separation of the world. Now he's talking about those who, who have the mind of Christ and minister in a in a, in a ruling sense in this world, in God's spiritual kingdom. We'll look at this a little bit more. <clears throat> but he's not simply meaning criticism he's, and, and exclusion. He's talking about mediating the truth of God. He says, don't you realize that the saints will rule or judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels. Probably most of us hear that and say, no, was I supposed to know that we're going to judge angels? Right? Is that a, that's an easy, easy text. You all know what that means, right? Uh, no, well, we'll get there. So how much more then matters pertaining to this life? Very good question. And, and, and the, the, the Corinthians are forgetting their future. And if we forget our future, our eschatological hope, or those promises that we've been given as Christians in, in this life and the life to come, we start warring against others, acting inappropriately because we don't realize what we're called to, what we're going to fulfill later on. For every single Christian, you have a royal position in God's kingdom. From the smallest 
to the greatest. We have ruling positions in the kingdom of God. I want to show you something out of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, we see, we, we even visited there this morning in our passage through Mark, but, but here we see the, the vision that was given of these, these kingdoms. In Daniel's vision, it was, it was beasts, these, these kingdoms that would raise up against God's kingdom, uh, and, and each one of them would fall to the next kingdom. But eventually, there's going to be a king who comes, and he is going to come and establish an eternal kingdom. It will not be broken down by the next more powerful man. It's going to be a righteous kingdom. The dominion of the world, the ruling over it, will be taken from those godless, destructive kings and given to the king of God and his people. We see in Daniel chapter 7, and it's actually verse 27, he says prophetically, and the kingdom... And the dominion, that's the ruling, judging reign. And the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, that is the Most High, God, the Son of Man, Jesus, our King. He, His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. That is a, a majestic uh, uh, declaration. But, but you see there, I want you to notice it says, not only does the king get it, our Jesus, but he gives the kingdoms to us to rule through us. So he says, uh, halfway there, he says, the kingdoms shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. That's you and me. Jesus came, he established the kingdom, uh, it's in play now, and, and all of the, the, the authority on earth, and we're going to distinguish civil and spiritual authority a bit later, but the point is that if you're in the kingdom, there is a, a, a sense in which God is ruling through you, bringing his word to bear on the world through you, in a way that you are royalty in his spiritual kingdom. There's going to be a future aspect to the kingdom of God that, uh, uh, that, that is, in, in that sense, more fully realized. It's more noticeable than we would really realize in our world at the moment. But it's coming. Well, we also read this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, where we read, Uh, uh, Jesus say this, 2 verse 26, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have, have received authority from my father. Or in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, a repeat, of the Daniel 7 prophecy. It says, I saw thrones and seated on them with those to whom the authority to judge was committed. It's not just Jesus. This is multiple thrones, authority to judge given to the people of the kingdom, the saints, the Christians. And we even read, of course, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that we are raised up and seated with Christ on the throne currently. So if you're, if you're a Christian... You have the blood of the king in your veins. 
You have the law of the king given to you. You have the spirit of the king. You have the heart of the king. And the spirit uses these things to bring to bear on this world a righteousness and a Christ-likeness, justice and a gospel-centered authority into this world. God uses us to be his servants on earth as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom, uh, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's our role and reign. We have a, a future purpose. You have to think eschatologically. You can't just think that your Christian life is the time you have and then it's done. You are carrying a, a baton. You are carrying the royal scepter. And it is your job to minister well, to bring righteousness in your life, in whatever section of, of ground you've been given, in your family, business, economy, whatever. You're to act righteously and plant righteous seeds in your children and in your disciples and in the world so that God's kingdom comes to bear more and more. That's our job. So here's Paul. Okay, we have that mindset of Christianity now. He says, don't you realize you're going to judge the world in this current sense and also in the future on judgment day, there will be a sense where we're on Christ's team He's judging and, and we're behind him in judgment on the world. Those church members that the world slew and slaughtered and opposed, we will be vindicated on that day. <laughs> but he, so there's the now sense, there's the then sense, and then there's the really confusing sense when he says, and don't you know you judge angels? Not really, not sure what that means. I, I think that what he's referring to is that the fallen angels will be in judgment, so they will be judged and we will be with Jesus judging them as the ones they attacked, as the ones they opposed. And there's another sense now that i uh, not entirely sure how this will, will, will tie into the text, whether this is what he's meaning, but, but that the angels, the good angels, God's angels are still currently serving you. You're ruling over them in, in a very strict sense. Not that we command them about and whatnot, but Jesus commands them for us. So we are, we are royalty. We are God's kings and queens on the earth. So can you imagine what it looks like when the world looks on and we, who in the future will be deciding cosmic interrelations between angels and nations and that's us and they look at us and we're getting in squabbles and punching each other up over, over, you scratched my car, I need money back now. It's terribly, terribly unbecoming, unfitting of those who will inherit such a kingdom as this. So what this means for us is, as the Corinthians should have understood, God has picked us and equipped us to rule with him. Now, and in the kingdom's fullest realization later. And if that is our calling, are we not equipped to handle interpersonal, very awkward, uh, difficult, sin-related problems now? Brother to brother, sister to sister, family member to family member. When we have issues of sins against each other, financial, personal, whatever it may be, 
where those happen, we have to be, even in our professional uh, uh, senses, uh, where somebody's dodging you out on a contract that was, that was written down, when somebody's lying to you about and hiding finances, where Christians are involved, we should be able to, in our most professional to simply personal situations, be able to show the world what peace, forgiveness, reasonable wisdom looks like in wading through the sinful problems of this world. So that, that's, that's what Paul is saying. Why is it that we, like the Corinthians, often need to bring the pagans who are going to be judged, the pagans who we're supposed to be ruling over, why are the Corinthians bringing them in to do the ruling over of them? Paul's mindset is confused. How much, you know, don't you know that you're going to be judging the world, the angels? Are you therefore not able to judge matters pertaining to this life? I, I kind of imagine the, this, this sort of scene, an imaginary scene of, of mate, back in the First World War where, where the Germans had, had uh, uh, you know, imagine they, they conquered Europe. They took what they wanted and they make it across the aisle to England. And they, they storm all that they need to and they get to Buckingham Palace. And there these victorious power, this, this German motherland had, had decided to, uh, yeah, had sent up its best soldiers over and they were about to take the palace of the Commonwealth. There they are lined up outside the gate and they're issuing their cries of command and saying, we're going to rule over you. We're going to take your powers. We're going to take your, 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 your economy. We're going, to, we're going to take over your legal system. We are these omnipotent rulers who will destroy you, England. And then while they're you know, thinking like that, they, they have to sort of radio in to the palace and say, hey guys, sorry, we, we know we're about to come and, and take you as our own kingdom, but, but can you send out a security officer? We just can't get the key to open this gate. Can you, can you help us out with that? I think that, that scene is, is what the Corinthians are acting out. Yeah, imaginary scene, don't check the history books, that didn't happen. But, but that these people who have such a, such a great uh, 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 calling on their life that they think they're going to go fulfill, but cannot deal with the lock on the gate. Christians need to be wiser, wiser than that and than any of our equals in the world. Well, let's keep going. Verse 4 and onwards, we're going to see how they were forgetting their assets. They'd forgotten the distinction of world and church. They'd forgotten their future of, of ruling with Christ and how that affects our life now. And now they're forgetting their assets, what they've got in the church that should be able to help with these situations. Paul says, if you have such cases, these trivial cases in your life, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? No standing in the church. He's talking about, about the, the politicians, the governors, the, the, the court system that is not Christian out, out there. Why are you taking your personal cases and putting them before them as if they're equipped or as if they're more equipped than you? There's reason that Paul's using this sort of insulting language about them, you know, those with no regard, those lowly. In fact, uh, a more literal translation might be those despised by the church. And it's because while Christians should be characterized by justice, 
the Roman, and often in our day, the, the pagan courts are not ruled by justice. We, of course, have this, have this biblical history and, um, and Christian uh, uh, legacy that has given to us the, the Westminster and sort of Judeo-Christian moral system. Our legal system is pretty good compared to others in the world. But still out there, people given to bribery. In the Corinthian day, it, there was bribery. It was all a power play. The judge would not condemn somebody who was higher than him in society for fear of retribution. Uh, there was an, inequal, sorry, an unequal access to justice. The poor could not afford all the lawyers that they needed to defend themselves. It was a very unfair system. In fact, we, we even see in Paul's own life, like he's, he's experienced this. He knows that the Romans are not all that just. He'd been kept, there was, uh, it was Felix, Governor Felix in Acts chapter 24, who kept Paul in prison because he thought there might be a bribe coming his way for keeping him there. He was expecting a, a good cash uh, in pocket to then be able to let Paul out, but Paul wasn't playing that game. He didn't have money to give. And then he sort of kept him in prison for even longer just to sort of please the Jewish leaders. That's not justice. That's brutality. That's tyranny. Paul knew it. So he knows that they don't have, they rightly don't have standing in the church's standard of righteousness. So basically, he, he says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Yes, this is meant to shame them. Yes, they were supposed to hear this letter read and just put their head in their hands in shame as everyone in the congregation who had taken somebody else to court hears this. It says, is, can it be? Is it even possible that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. He's saying here that, that there, is, there should in, in every church, and there is in every church, somebody who knows enough of the gospel and enough of the word of God to pass judgment on these interpersonal matters. Even if you could just imagine the, the worst church ever, the, or, or the really only person in this tiny little church who is able to pass judgment is somebody who's been saved a couple of weeks, and all they know, Jesus loves me, forgave me by fulfilling the law's commands of, of righteousness and being cursed in my place. Like, that's all I know. And then they bring to them the, the biggest, most important dispute that one brother had, had swindled the other Christian out of millions of dollars. So they bring that to this new Christian, and they're going to they're trust him, this new Christian, to judge before them. And, and this guy doesn't know anything. He doesn't know what Christian finances look like. He does, he's not a mature believer. And all he says is, well, I don't know much. Um, uh, how about this? You pay back what you owe and you forgive whatever he can't pay back and forgive the offense and I'll see it communion on Sunday, forgiving each other and, and taking communion alongside each other. Just, you know, Jesus forgave us. Surely you can forgive each other. Like that, of course, we want to look at that and say, oh, that's not complex enough. That's not wise and educated enough. And Paul's saying, even if that's all you got, that is better than dragging your problems in front of a court of law who know nothing of how Christians ought to be behaving, who, who can't exhort you on the basis of the word and the gospel. 
to live like Jesus. The, the lowest mind in the church is better dealing with your problems if you can't deal with them yourself than the legal court of unbelievers. Of course, we're not in that situation. Almost no church is. Every church who, who sends personal disputes to a law court is overlooking their own assets. So that means there are going to be people in this church who, who need to you know, step up when, when different things or circumstances come about. Like maybe you're, you've, you're great on finances. Maybe you're great with, with contracts. Maybe you're tremendous when it comes to um, uh, building uh, legislation, whatever it is. And at different points of the church's life, we need to call on those different people and say, can you help us out here? Uh, who's right? Who's wrong? What should we be doing here or there? Can we legally do this or that? So there's a call. Every church has the assets, assets it needs, but often they're hidden. Come forward, put your hand down let's, uh, and, uh, to, to work, and, and once the church works together in that way, we'll be much better off. So the church Christians, especially mature Christians, especially church leadership, should be able to sit down warring brothers or sisters and sort out peace and arrive at a conclusion that's really what Paul's saying here. It's pretty straightforward, uh, but it's, it's so important and so often overlooked. While in the um, uh, Corinthian system, this would happen. There would be a, a problem, one Christian to another, and it became an opportunity to take more than you needed. Paul's saying that, that, the, that instead of going to the unbelievers and injustice rules, Take it to church leadership, and maybe the church leadership, the elders will decide about it. Maybe they'll sit down in a room with the parties and mediate. Maybe they'll form a committee of other people who are way more equipped in that specific area who can deal with it. And, and basically, once that is decided on, then those brothers solve it, and they can walk on. That's what it's supposed to look like. So I'm, I'm asking you that if, if there is a legal, financial Contract, so, you know, let's imagine somebody bumps into your car out in the car park, dents you, and then they drive off, but you know who it was. You got one of those cool camera things all around your car. The issue there is, the solution there, rather, is not to run down to Judge Judy and get her to decide the case. The issue is to talk to the brother. Matthew 18, church discipline style. You just talk brother to brother. Man, I saw you drive off. I see my paint on your car. Can you please pay back what is owed? If, if that's not going to work out, bring it for mediation in the church. Uh, maybe, maybe somebody uh, contracts out another Christian for work and they ditch the contract, that break its requirements halfway through and leave the job undone. You know, there's not a wall on this house or, or they didn't do the plumbing right or whatever the issue is. If they're Christians, surely there's enough Christian maturity between their church leadership, maybe different churches than two sets of church leadership, to be able to sort this problem out so that the world doesn't see Christians at war in courts. That should be able to be done. So matters of wisdom, this is, this is the clear distinction. Matters of wisdom and personal disputes are handled, handled by the church. Matters of crime and legal problems are handled by the courts and by the authorities that be. So sins are not crimes. Not all sins are crimes. The Christian, there's a few specific rules here. 
The Christians are not above the law. Christians are not above the law. Just because we're kings and we're in Jesus' kingdom doesn't mean we don't obey rulers and we don't drive the speed limit and, and things like that. We, we should. We have to. This is the time God's put us in to live. However, we do and we must disobey unrighteous laws, laws that the government is not allowed to make, laws that uh, require us to sin or forbid us from walking in righteousness. We have to oppose those laws. But just because of that, that doesn't mean that crimes, just because we get to, to, to make that judgment call, that doesn't mean that crimes in the church don't get taken to the authorities. I say this because there are many people who do large damage to Christians because pastors don't realize this distinction. They let uh, people come in and, and, and call themselves Christians, but who are going about uh, abusing their wife. And, and they're, they're not going to be, they're not listening to the church to step aside. Maybe they've gone under the church discipline process. They're still in that house beating up that woman. The church may have the ability to get a couple of guys together and go tell that guy what's up, but the church doesn't have the legal power to evict him, to put a restraining order in. So they need to engage the courts there. Sometimes it's that there's uh, somebody in the church who's a pedophile and, and that person is, a, is harming children. It's not enough. Like I've seen and heard uh, about this happening. It's not enough for, for pastors to say, well, he said sorry and we've dealt with it. He's repentant. He might leave here. He might stay here. But ultimately, it's between him and God. No, that man needs to be dragged before the court and labeled like he is so that everyone else knows because there's victims. This is bigger than just the church. So there's, there's going to be other issues. We don't have time to go into all of them, but personal problems the church deals with. Even if there's contracts and money and other things involved, Christians deal with Christians. And crimes are dealt with by reporting. Well, lastly, and we'll really close here, that the big problem with us when we foster this mindset of retaliation, and definitely among the Corinthians, the problem is that they forgot their master. Our problem is that we forget our master. He gave us commands. He told us in, in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to go there to read it out of Jesus' own words, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, in speaking about retaliation, he said, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The way they lived that out was, somebody slaps you, you take it back. You slap them. Somebody steals from you, you steal back. Somebody speaks against you, you speak back to the same degree. Well, Jesus was saying, there's a misunderstanding of that text. What I say to you, is to not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him to the other also. This is not talking about self-defense. There's a different question. I'm going to cover that in the Biblical Manhood series. This is talking about offense. Somebody, somebody gives you a petty slap. Somebody spits on your feet or spits in your face and insults you. No one's in danger. They're not murdering you. They're not an assailant. They're just insulting you horrendously. Let it go. Let him insult you more. Your personal offense does not matter. 
And if anyone would sue, your, sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus' command. If the only thing at, at, at risk here is your reputation and your humiliation, you give. You don't retaliate. As Paul's going to tell us in Romans 12 verse 17, pay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. That's our command. That's the Christian ethic. My personal offense does not need to be made right between me and them. I will forgive. They can repent or not. If they're a brother, I'm going to address them about it, if it's serious enough. So verse 7, Paul says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat. It doesn't matter who's going to win. If you guys are going to court, getting them to solve it, you've both lost. And the kingdom loses. Why not rather suffer wrong? For the sake of the kingdom and the king and the witness and righteousness, just suffer wrong. Why not rather be defrauded, but instead you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers? This loses sight of Jesus' example, where we were told in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't throw insults back. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If your only option to get back what you want is to take a brother to court, that is not an option for you. It also means, you know, social court. Wives don't go on to Facebook complaining about their lazy husbands. Goodness me. Husbands don't go on complaining about their kids and their family members, dragging it before everybody else. You don't go into Facebook and, 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 and whatever else and the workroom and complain about others to try and get a, a social vindication, if, if, even if it's not an official courtroom decision. No, friends, we suffer wrong without retaliation. Our options are, first of all, not owe each other. You owe a brother money from a contract or a dodged job or a botched job, rather, or a car prang, or, or selling somebody something that ends up as actually a lemon and you knew about it and their car is broken down two days after sale. If you've sinned, you repay. You take responsibility and make sure that debt is cleared. But for brothers, if somebody owes you and they're unable to repay, then we take the loss. We take the defraud if they are in a state of repentance. If they're unrepentant, then we really ask the question about whether they're a Christian. And we go through the church discipline path. That may be found, this person who owes you is not a real Christian. They're not willing to even admit wrong. And at that point, there, there might be church discipline that puts them out. And, and while you might technically then be able to take them to court, you have to check your own heart, keep mind of your own conscience, that if your desire is retribution, retaliation, you have to let it go. You're in sin. But if your motivation is, is getting money for, for the family of yours that is now starving 
or, the, or there is need, or there is looking after other people, or your business is going to flop if this isn't sorted out, of course, that with wisdom, with discernment, and with a gospel mindset needs to be addressed. So, let us realize this, Christians. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we read chapter 2 earlier, chapter 3 tells us that Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We've been reconciled by blood. Are we now going to hold unforgiveness against others? Are we now going to be forgiven the debt of sin, an eternal, infinite debt of crime against God's law, debt against his standards, offenses against him, which have been forgiven in Jesus? Are we now going to hold petty differences against others, small cash amounts against brothers and sisters when we're inheritors of a coming kingdom? For those who, this mindset of forgiveness is utterly unthinkable. That you would let somebody else get away with offending you? If you can't get your mind around that, it is likely that you have not been born again. You haven't passed from unrighteousness to becoming a saint. You haven't been made new by the Spirit. And so the call today is to bring your selfishness, your, your one-upmanship, your reputation and your self-worth, your desire for riches and, and social image and standing. Bring them to Jesus for the sins that they are. Put them at the foot of the cross because he can absorb every one of them and make you a righteous believer. He can declare you righteous today, forgiving your sins and bringing you into his Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we so often want to bring back to ourselves what we are owed. We want to chase others in retaliation. And I pray, Lord, that you would give to us mercy and grace and forgiveness among our people, that we might be a shining light in this dark world of revenge and animosity. Let us shine forth peace and grace and the men being able to be masculine enough to sit down and have hard discussions, not running away from talk, and that the women would be peaceful and gentle enough to be able to uh, uh, walk through differences and offenses, that, Lord, we would be able to be doing this as a body to glorify you. God, as you have called us to be reconciled to each other, would you please also reconcile sinners to yourself? Please forgive them. Use this word to bring them to life. May they know Jesus savingly through your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.